a native of England, and you'll definitely know why he's a native of England here in a moment. Uh, Joseph Pierce is the internationally acclaimed author of many books, which include bestsellers, such as The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, Literary Converts, Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton, Solzhenitsyn, A Soul in Exile, Old Thunder, A Life of Hilaire Belloc. He's been published and translated into many different languages, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Dutch, Italian, Korean, Mandarin, Croatian, and of course, Polish. He's hosted two 13-part television series about Shakespeare and EWTN. He's also written and presented documentaries on the, on the network on Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And without any further ado, uh, tonight he'll be speaking on the wisdom of Hilaire Belloc's A Path to Rome. Let's give a nice, joyful, authentic welcome to Mr. Joseph Pierce. Good evening, everybody. And as uh, Mike alluded to my accent, I want to make one thing perfectly clear before we go any further, that I am the only person in this room without an accent. <laughs> so during the Q&A, ask your questions slowly and I'll do my best to understand, okay? <laughs> so this evening we're going to talk about the wisdom of Hilaire Belloc's The Path to Rome. Um, but I'm guessing that many of you have not read the book. Um, so I'm going to give some context first of all before we get on to that. One other thing, oh, perfect, um, <laughs> um, is I'm going to say something about who is Hilaire Belloc, for those of you that don't know. Um, for those of you that want to know more than I'm going to say in the next, uh, such as the introductory part of this talk, I have just one copy of my Hilaire Belloc biography uh, at the back there, so the first come, first served. If anyone wants to know more about that, the publisher is currently out of stock and they're going to get more in mid-December, so I had one copy to bring with me. So who is Hilaire Belloc? Well, a few facts of his life, first of all, and then I'm going to, then I'm going to broaden out the context. He was born in 1870, just outside of Paris in France. His father was French. His mother was English, his mother was a convert to the faith. Um, within months of his birth, the family had to um, evacuate the family home uh, because of the, the, the Prussian invasion of France. 1870 was the Franco-Prussian War, and the family managed to get the um, last train out of Paris before the siege of Paris to the northern coast where they came to England. If they had not caught that train, we would not be listening to this talk now, uh, because Hilaire Belloc almost certainly would not have survived the first 12 months of his life. Because the siege of Paris, which, which, which uh, ensued, just about every child under 12 months old died in the famine and disease that was the consequence of that siege. 
So as a baby, he escapes by the skin of his teeth. He's then raised in England, um, and uh, particularly, especially in a, a count, the county of Sussex, which is very important to him, which we'll discuss as we go on, um, and um, served in the French army. So he would consider himself to be a Frenchman, although he spent virtually all of his life in England, um, and a man of Sussex, so, but not an Englishman. Um, and he was first published in 1896, met uh, G.K. Chesterton in 1900, and when I talk about the history of the Catholic cultural revival and, uh, it, 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 in the English-speaking world and how huge that was, there basically there, there are specific periods of that revival. The first is what I call the gestation period, um, before the, the birth of the revival, and that's from 1798 to 1845. And that's um, the uh, Romantic movement in England, heralded by Wordsworth and Coleridge especially, which morphed into various forms of neo-medievalism. Um, again, I have time to talk about that. That's a different talk. Um, maybe you'll invite me back and we can do that one next time. Um, so that's the period from... 1798 to 1845, very quickly, as regards the significance to the Catholic cultural revival, and the, I say the birth of the revival was in 1845. What happened in 1845 that, that signifies the birth of the Catholic revival? The conversion of Newman, thank you very much. So the, 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 the first period after the birth, after the 47-year gestation period, from 1845 to 1890, I call the Newman period, 45-year period, and then there's what I call the decadent interlude, the 1890s. And I wrote a book on the unmasking of Oscar Wilde. It's astonishing how many of those English and French decadents from the decadent movement were converts that became converts to the Catholic faith. That's another discussion. But then in 1900, G.K. Chesterton was first published. So the period from 1900 to 1936, which is the date of Chesterton's death, I call the period of the Chester Belloc. And the, the, the fourth period is the period from 1937 to 1990, uh, actually 1973, I'm not going to quibble here, um, uh, which is 1937 was the publication of The Hobbit. Uh, and the period from 1937 to the death of J.R.R. Tolkien in 1973 is what I call the Inklings period, where the two giants, at the, although Lewis, of course, was not... Uh, a, a Catholic, and I also have a book back there called C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, if you wonder why he wasn't a Catholic. Um, but Tolkien and Lewis were at the head of that fourth period. But this third period then is the period in which we're, we're, of which we're speaking here, the period of the Chester Belloc, from 1900, when Chesterton was first published, to 1936, Chesterton's death. I call it the period of the Chester Belloc because although Chester Belloc is so often seen as being in Chesterton's shadow, um, in his own day, he was very much seen as Chesterton's equal. And I, one of the things I hope to be able to help towards is Belloc being able to step out from Chesterton's shadow and become the force that he is in his own right, and not merely as a footnote or an afterthought when we talk about Chesterton. So very quickly, before I get on to his one of the great, many great books he wrote, but the classic, The Path to Rome, I want to talk about, um, I'm going to compare Chesterton and Belloc 
And so you can see how Belloc isn't equal. They were both men of letters. They didn't confine themselves to one particular genre um, of writing. So they were novelists, poets, historians, political writers, biographers, essayists, novelists, ap apologists for the Catholic faith. All of those areas. So go through those very quickly. As a novelist, Chesterton, I, I, this is obviously my, Udice, my own personal judgment here. As novelists, I think Chesterton is definitely superior. Belloc's novels, for the most part, I think are slow and stolid and too subtle for their own good. Chesterton's novels, on the other hand, are absolutely delightful. Uh, and in the case of Man Who Was Thursday, an absolute classic. As poets, however, I actually think Belloc is a superior poet to Chesterton. Chesterton wrote a handful of extremely, or uh, of great poems, Lepanto being obvious. Um, but he, Chesterton wrote everything in haste. You look at Chesterton's art, he sketches, but I didn't even mention artists. He sketches. Everything's done very quickly. Well, that's fine as for journalism, and Chesterton, I didn't even mention journalism. <laughs> for journalism, you know, that's perfect, right? Being able to write very well, very quickly to deadline is necessary. But for poetry, most of the time it's deadly. Because poetry has to be taken time with and revisited. And Chester never took the time. So I wrote fairly recently for the Imaginary Conservative, what 10 books would I take if I was in a prison cell and I could only take 10 books with me? What would I take? So I cheated. I would take the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, and, and, and other books like that, but I included in it the, the collected poems of Hilaire Belloc, because I could not imagine myself being parted from them. We could have a whole talk on Belloc's poetry, but we won't, but we will finish the talk with, with one of his poems, because the book, this book finishes with one of his poems. As historians, um, Belloc is definitely superior to Chesterton. In fact, Chesterton's understanding of European history is dependent upon Hilaire Belloc. Um, Chester knew about English history, but he knew very little about European history until he met Belloc. And, and his understanding of this broader uh, understanding of Christendom, he gets from Belloc. Their political and economic creed, which became known as distributism, which was rooted on the teaching of the uh, social teaching of the Catholic Church, especially um, in Rerum Novarum, Leo XIII's encyclical, Chesterton says of Belloc, you are the master and we are the disciples. And Belloc himself was a disciple of Leo XIII and Cardinal Manning, who was a great influence upon him. But Chesterton certainly took his lead as regards his understanding of politics and economics from Belloc and his understanding of history from Belloc. As biographers, I'm not sure anything Belloc wrote was as good as Chesterton's Thomas Aquinas or Francis of Assisi. But certainly, Belloc wrote many, many great biographies, especially of leading figures in the, the rupture of England from the Catholic faith. Um, so from, he wrote books on Cardinal Wolsey and Cranmer and Milton and Charles II, and these great historic figures from the time of the so-called Reformation in England in the 
20s and 30s through to, uh, through to uh, the so-called Glorious Revolution in 1688. So as a, as a, as a, hist uh, as a biographer, um, Belloc is certainly shoulder to shoulder. As essayists, they're very different, but they're both brilliant. Uh, and I wouldn't separate them uh, as regards who is better. As apologists for the Catholic faith, there's no doubt at all that Chesterton's orthodoxy and the everlasting man have been more influential than anything that Belloc wrote. But Belloc's um, The Great Heresies has been hugely influential. And his late book, Survivals and New Arrivals, is just a masterpiece as a history of heresy from the, from the early church through to the modern times. And the way I sometimes uh, compare the, the style of apologetics of, of Chesterton and Belloc is that Chesterton dazzles with the speed of his wit and, and his epigrams and, and paradoxes. He's like a swordsman. Right? He's moving his wit and his writing and his pen, moving so quickly, it's like he's you know, a, fighting a sword fight for Christ. Speed, agility. It's counterproductive when you think about Chesterton's build, but his mind uh, and his ability to write wittily. So if, but if, if Chesterton was called also by the poet Walter de la Mer the Knight of the Holy Ghost. So we have this picture of Chesterton as a Knight of the Holy Ghost wielding his sword for Christendom. Belloc just rides trundles over the horizon in a tank. He just goes solidly and stolidly demolishing, crushing underfoot all of the errors and the heresies of Christendom very methodically, very rationally, very unemotionally. So they're both brilliant apologists, in, but in very different ways. Okay, so that's the comparison. So you'll have understood now that why I think Belloc is, is someone who's uh, one of the great figures of, uh, of culture in general, of Catholic culture in particular, and how he does stand shoulder to shoulder with Chesterton as regards being the leader of that period of the Catholic revival. But Belloc also, I, I mean, I don't know if I, there must be other books that are similar, but for me, there's something, Belloc is unique, he's invented a genre, or at least made it his own. It's what, what I call peripatetic Farragos. Try me again after four of these with that one. Peripatetic Faragos. So there's two things going on in these books. Peripatetic is moving forward. There's a journey involved, usually on foot. Belloc was a great hiker. Um, we mentioned some of that, but he hiked um, uh, a chunk of the United States in the days of the Wild West in the early 1890s. He walked from northern France to Rome, which we'll be talking about. He hiked across his own beloved Sussex, um, so you have this forward momentum of this journey. Reminds me of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings at, at walking pace. And yet he wanders off, as you do, if you've ever been hiking, particularly if you've been hiking by yourself, you know, you, you've got plenty of time to yourself. So you think and you pray and you meditate and you muse and you see beauty and you think about beauty. 
So there's all this going on in your heart, in your mind, and that's what Belloc does. So he's moving forward, but expanding outwards with all these musings on philosophy, history, theology. So the three principal books he wrote that I call peripatetic Farragos, one is uh, The Cruise of the Nona, where he doesn't actually walk, he's in his uh, boat, and it's it's basically a a sailing trip around the English coast on his boat called the Nona. So it's a journey, but this is on sea. He was a sailor, amongst other things. The next one, which I really love, and to me, it's sort of, I can't make make up my mind which I prefer, The Path to Rome, or this other one is called The Four Men. And The Four Men is a walk across Sussex, uh, at, with, with four men, and the four men are myself, the poet, Grizzlebeard, and the sailor. And it's clear that these four men are really just four aspects of Hilaire Belloc in dialogue with each other. So Belloc, myself, Grizzlebeard, the historian who knows the history and of the ancient times, the sort of Gandalf figure, if you like, this part of Belloc's personality, the sailor, as I said, we said he's a sailor, the poet, and how these different aspects of the personality interact with each other. And then we have the path to Rome. Now, the first thing you have to understand about the path to Rome is it's more than it seems. You make the Protestant mistake, and I apologise for any Protestants in, in the audience, that wasn't actually meant to be an insult, um, probably was an insult, but it wasn't meant to be an insult, that if you read it literally, you're missing the point. Because on one level, this is a work of non-fiction. Hilaire Belloc really did do this walk. He really did go to all these places. When I wrote my biography of Belloc, you know, I double-checked the trip and the letters he's writing back to his wife while he's actually doing the, the, the walk. This is something that really happened as Belloc tells it. It's not a work of fiction, it's a work of fact. But you have to read the book allegorically because you have to read reality allegorically. That our physical lives have metaphysical meaning. What we do has spiritual as well as physical consequences to ourselves and others. So very quickly, how do we read reality allegorically? Well, I'm going to go through actually some of the great classics of literature, because this is a classic of, of, of literature and it needs to be read in the same way. So the Bible, for instance, Bible, a classic of literature, shoot me, shoot me. If you don't read the Bible as literature, you don't read it at all. And you don't have to take my word for it, take St. Thomas Aquinas' word for it, who tells us that there are four levels of meaning in Scripture. One level is the literal meaning, the other three levels are allegorical levels of meaning. So the literal level of meaning is what's actually happening, physically, factually. Then you have the allegorical meaning, and with Scripture it's that the Old Testament is always an allegory of the new. In other words, the Old Testament is is foreshadowing, prefiguring the New Testament. 
The Old Testament has to be read in the light of the New Testament. If you don't read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament, you're not reading it properly. So you have to read this literal, factual, historical book in the light of something that hasn't happened yet. And then beyond that, Aquinas tells us, you have, beyond the, the, the allegorical level, you have the moral level of meaning. How does what I'm reading in the Bible and this relationship to an Old and New Testament relate to me personally, my own personal life? How does what's happening on the page leave the page to become part of my life and the way I act? And then the fourth level of meaning is the anagogical meaning. How does what we read in Scripture point to the eternal things? the four last things to death judgment heaven hell so if you don't read the bible allegorically you're not reading it at all very quickly because i do want to go on the path to rome but going through i'm going to go through some of the classic works of literature um, chronologically boethius the, the constellation of philosophy boethius in the in the book is in prison awaiting a death sentence. In real life, he's in prison awaiting a death sentence. But he is visited by the lady philosophy, who's a beautiful woman. But she's really not a woman at all. She's a personified abstraction. The beauty of the woman is merely a reflection of the beauty of philosophy, the beauty of the love of wisdom. That's why in C.S. Lewis's book, The Pilgrim's Regress, John, the everyman character, is saved from the monster, the spirit of the age, by a beautiful woman in shining armour called Reason. And she has two younger sisters, philosophy and theology. Allegory. Beowulf, that great English epic. The first two parts of Beowulf are... Um, an allegorical um, rebuttal of the heresy of Pelagianism, the idea that we can get to he uh, heaven through the triumph of our own will. We don't need grace. We don't need the sacraments. We don't need ch the church. We just, what would Jesus do and do it? Pelagianism is the, probably the most popular heresy around today. It's just changed its name. It's just called the self-help religion. Do it yourself, man. And the last part of Beowulf is, a, is an allegory upon the passion of Christ. No time to talk about the details. Dante, of course. Dante's journey is the character in, in the Divine Comedy is our journey. This book is our journey. It's not just Belloc's hike to Rome. It's our journey to heaven, as we shall see. Beginning of the Divine Comedy, Dante has a midlife crisis. He has to understand the reality of sin, its ugliness, its consequences, so that he can have that level of a penitential spirit that wants to be purged of his own sinfulness, that he may be at one with the saints, with the Blessed Virgin, and of course with God. Shakespeare, 
I'm going to say nothing about Shakespeare because I, I don't know, wouldn't know where to start or, or finish. Uh, I, I've written three books on Shakespeare. One's called Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Seeing the Catholic Presence in the Plays, as it was illegal in Shakespeare's time to write about contemporary religion and politics. He couldn't say anything about Catholicism overtly. So all references to contemporary politics and religion are allegorical. And then that great modern epic, The Lord of the Rings. Again, I had no time to talk about this, but Tolkien uses the same allegorical techniques as medieval literature. That shouldn't surprise us because he's a medievalist, particularly using dates and numbers to, to, to signify things. The fact that the ring is destroyed on March the 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation, and also, according to tradition, the historical date of the crucifixion allows us to understand the ring as sin and bearing the ring as bearing the cross, wearing the ring as being immortal sin and so much else we could say. So you see that we have to, if we just read literature literally and not literarily, we're not reading it at all. That's very important for this book because this book is talking about things that really happened, but they have eternal, spiritual, allegorical significance. As what happens in your life has that significance. And part of understanding who you are and where you fit in the cosmos and in terms of reality is to, to, re, to see your life in terms of homo viator, man on a journey, Anthropos, he who looks up in wonder. Homo superbus, the proud man who refuses the journey. Because those aspects are all part of who you are. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the battle between good and evil takes place in each individual human heart. All right. So the path to Rome, Belloc. On one level, is Belloc doing the walk historically in reality? Belloc, on another level, is all of us who are also on the journey. Because our life journey is homo viator, man on a journey, is meant to be not just some meaningless uh, wander from A to B. It's meant to be a pilgrimage to heaven. The only purpose of life is to get to heaven. If we don't get to heaven, we're miserable losers. So therefore, life is a quest. We have to slay dragons, because there are many of them out there. And we can't slay dragons without supernatural assistance. So the pilgrimage to Rome in this is an allegory of our own life journey, as well as Belloc's own relationship with Christ that transcends the mere physicality of the journey. And Rome, of course, here is not just a geographical space halfway down Italy. It's St. Augustine's city of God. It's the eternal city. It's symbolic of heaven. The journey is a journey through life to eternity, to the eternal city, the city of God, to heaven. So let's look at, now get into the text. 
The beginning of the book, I'm using the Ignatius Critical Edition here. So it's in Latin. So what I said about I'm the only one here that doesn't have an accent. If you have any problems in my Latin translation, you just don't know how to translate Latin. <laughs> um, Amore antiqui ritus alto sub numine Rome, which can be translated as in love of the ancient rite under the high providence of Rome. Well, you can't really read that without thinking of the traditional mass, but it's not just about that, it's about the mass in general. There was only the traditional mass when this book was written. That's not, that's not even an issue. In love of the mass and the mystical body of Christ of which it is a mystical expression under the high providence of Rome, it's under the high providence ultimately of God. The Catholic Church is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. All right, then I've written a sort of poem and scribbled this down when I wrote this once, which I just called Belloc, and it's published in my volume of poetry. Not the bombast of relativism, the bombast of mere opinion, sanitized by self righteousness but the bombast of sanity, the bombast of certitude, sanctified by servitude to the righteousness beyond the self. This is Belloc epigrammatically summarized. Because he's seen as bombastic, full of himself, courageous in what he says, but it's not the bombast of relativism. And that's what we see here. And then um, Belloc's own judgment of the book. I don't know if I'm going to read it, but it's in, the, in, in my introduction for this. He considered it the best book he ever wrote. He actually wrote a poem at the front of it in a, about eight years after it was published, um, saying uh, the, the, uh, the refrain of which was, Alas, I never shall so write again. Which is sad because it's one of his first books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the best thing I've ever written, I've written already, I'm never going to be able to do this again. And that was, I think, about 1908, so about six years after it was published. Um, after his novel, the best novel he wrote, I think the last novel he wrote, is, was called Belinda. And after he wrote that, he said, this is the best thing I've written since The Path to Rome. So, in other words, that he, he, he kept that judgment. In the introduction, because I do want to get make progress here. I also give Chesterton's judgment on the book. Chesterton wrote a review of The Path to Rome shortly after it was published when he actually talks about its brilliance. Robert Spate, here Belloc's biographer, I think sums, up, sums the book up quite well, so I think I will read that. Um, the, the, the last sentence of Chesterton's what I quote from Chesterton's review. He will be a lucky man who can, who can escape from that world of freezing folly into the flaming and reverberating folly of the path to Rome. And then Robert Spates says, more than any other book he ever wrote, the path to Rome made Belloc's name. More than any other, it has been lovingly thumbed and pondered. It was a new kind of book, 
just as Belloc was a new kind of man. It gave a vital personality, rich and complex, bracing and abundant to the tired Edwardian world. Above all, it brought back the sense of Europe, physical and spiritual, into English letters. Vividly and personally experienced, the centuries returned. And then my own conclusion to the, my own introduction, which will be my own introduction to discussing the book, suffice it to say that from the poignancy of Belloc's superb preface, with its delightful combination of the wistful and the whimsical, to the dash and dare of the wonderful poem that serves as the book's and the pilgrim's conclusion, the path to Rome takes the reader on a journey into himself and out of himself, a voyage of discovery in which home and exile are interwoven in a mystical dance of contemplation. In its pages, we discover the Europe of the faith, which was and is the heart of Christendom, and the faith of Europe, which was and is the heart of all. So the first thing to comment upon that is the necessity of understanding home and understanding exile. I, I, I sense Hilaire Belloc's ghost scouring at me for endeavouring to continue a talk without any wine in my glass, and I can see some wine glass from there, and it looks like there might be a good neighbour up there that might even wander perambulate in this direction. <laughs> you can't give a talk on Belloc without being Bellocian, right? <laughs> You've got to get into character. God bless you. Thank you very much. So, of course, home and exile are interwoven. You can't have a sense of exile if you don't have a sense of home. Because Exile is being absent from home and knowing it and feeling it. So we have the, in, in the path to Rome this sense of home in various ways. Sussex, France, Europe, the faith, history. But all of those senses of home are interwoven with a sense of exile. Partly because Belloc is not at home, in many senses when he's writing this, but, but mostly because he's not at Rome. And Rome is home. And not in some literal sense of the word, because Rome was never home to Belloc in the literal sense of the word. In that metaphorical, spiritual sense, Rome signifies the eternal city, it signifies the beatific vision, it signifies heaven. And until we are united with God, we will never feel at home. That's why when we say, sing the Salve Regina, this is a veil of tears. And whenever I say it, by the way, I always say veil and not valley. First of all, it scans better. But more important than that, veil becomes a double entendre. Not just a veil as in a valley, it's a veil as in a V-E-I-L. This is a veil of tears. We can't see the goodness of God because we're looking through a veil of tears. And it's a land of exile. 
All of us are in a land of exile. Belloc evokes that sense of exile, that desire, that hunger for home in a palpable way in this book. So what inspires him to, to go to Rome in the first place is he finds himself at it, the place that was his childhood home in France and discovers the old beaten down church renovated. I was actually talking to Father earlier. I know there's plans, all sorts of exciting plans to renovate the church here. Please God, may it come to be. Um, but this renovation of the church inspired in Belloc a sense of gratitude which seemed to call out to him, seemed to be a vocation that he had to show his thanks in some dramatic way. And that's when he decides he's going to walk to Rome from northern France. Here about renovation, by the way, renewal, Chesterton said very famously that if you want to preserve something, you don't leave it alone. If you leave it alone, you leave it open to change. If you want to renovate something, you want to preserve something, you have to always be renewing it. And he talks about a gatepost. He said, if you want to preserve the gatepost, you don't leave it alone. You continually paint it so that, so that the gatepost is there. By the way, just in case anyone gets any wrong idea, I'm not talking about that in terms of liturgy. Um, very, might, might, might warrant a very quick sidebar. Tolkien said, I don't understand the mania for the so-called purity of the early church. He said, because I don't understand why the sapling is considered superior to the full-grown tree. And he said, and even if the sapling was superior to the full-grown tree, if you cut down the tree looking for the sapling, you don't find the sapling, you kill the tree. That's an understanding of tradition as something which is living and moves through the centuries without ever changing Okay, so a very large part of this is what I call the theology of place. It's key to understanding Belloc, it's key to understanding the theology of place. So he says here, for one's native place is the shell of one's soul, and one's church is the kernel of that nut." One of the dangers of the globalist cosmopolitanism in which we find ourselves is none of us have roots. And if we don't have roots, we are blown around like tumbleweeds by the, the winds of fashion. With roots, we can stand strong. So he's so overjoyed to see the renewal of the church that he makes a vow. He says, I vowed a vow. And he says, I will go to Rome on pilgrimage and see all Europe which the Christian faith has saved. And I said, I will start from the place where I served in arms for my sins, such tall in northern France. I will walk all the way and take advantage of no wheeled thing. I will sleep rough and cover 30 miles a day. And I will hear mass every morning 
and I'll be present at high mass in St. Peter's on the feast of Saints Peter and Paul. The rest of this book is how he is a miserable failure. <laughs> there is, a, in Dante's Divine Comedy, a warning against rash vows. So in his enthusiasm, I'm not just going to walk to Rome, I'm going to do it the hard way. No wheeled thing, no deviating from the, from the direct path. As the crow flies, which is right over the top of the high Alps. Only walk, walking at night, not during the day. Not, not sleeping in a bed, hearing mass every day. I arrive in St. Peter's on the feast of St. Peter and Paul. And he says, all my other vows I broke one by one. And said, for a faggot must be broken every stick singly. In other words, a stick has to be broken in order to be burning. But the strict vow I kept, the most important one I kept. For I entered Rome on foot that year in time, and I heard high mass on the Feast of the Apostles. So he got to Rome, but not on his own terms. Not on his own terms. That, those vows, those rash vows were Pelagian. I can do it through the triumph of my will and my own strength. Let anybody try to stop me. And because I have a lot of time, and I want to make sure I have time to do what we need to do here, in the preface to the book, he makes a, a witticism which invites me to go off on a tangent about a real-life episode where... Tolkien attended a talk given by Belloc in Oxford that the Jesuit Father Martin Darcy tells us about in his memoirs. Uh, and all I'm going to say here is, um, and why you will say is all this put by itself in what Anglo-Saxons call a foreword, but gentlemen a preface. So we have here, of course, we know that Tolkien is an Anglo-Saxon to the core. Belloc is a Frenchman to the core. And this uh, is the difference between them. So if you want to ask a question, that's an invitation to ask a question on that topic. But I'm not going to linger because that would take another five minutes and then I'll be running out of time completely. Um, he does talk about something very important here, right at the beginning of the book, just after the preface. Something which he calls the, uh, the grand climacteric. He's been very serious here, but with his tongue in his cheek. Belloc's very good at that. So, such as, for instance, when he sang a Christmas carol. Noel, 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 a Christian tale have I to tell. Noel, 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 my, all my enemies go to hell. Noel, Noel. Now, if you're, if you're going to read that literally, he's uh, not being very charitable. But it just means you don't have a sense of humour and the problem's with you. Take, for instance, the life of man, which is the difficulty of birth, the difficulty of death, and the difficulty of the gland climacteric. Okay, well, the first bit's easy. So this is actually obviously major stuff. The life of man, capital L, capital M, difficulty of birth, capital D, capital B, difficulty of death, capital D, capital D, Difficulty, the grand climacteric, capital D, capital G, capital C. 
And the lector, who's Belloc's foil in his, he, ha he, he has a reader accompany him so he can just use him as a foil, says, what is the gland climacteric? Which is probably what all of his readers were actually asking when they read it. And I said, I will tell you this much. It is the moment, not the year or the month, mind you, nor even the hour, but the very second when a man is grown up, when he sees things as they are, that is backwards, and feels solidly himself. Do I make myself clear? No matter, it is the shock of maturity, and that must suffice for you. But perhaps you've been reading little brown books on evolution, and you don't believe in catastrophes or climaxes or definitions. In other words, if you're incapable of reason, this will mean nothing to you. And then for the next page, I hear that some scientists are already beginning to admit the reality of birth, and death. Let but some brave few make an act of faith in the grand climacteric and all shall yet be well. There is, in, there is in every book the difficulty of the beginning, the difficulty of the turning point, which is the grand climacteric of a book. And what is that in a book? Why is the point where the reader has caught on? enters into the book and desires to continue reading it. The grand climacteric, we need to understand this because this is exactly what Belloc, there are various moments on the path to Rome that are grand climacterics, that are life-changing, that we're never going to be the same again because we've experienced the moment. Very quickly, I'm going to talk about how this plays itself out in Gerard Manny Hopkins, arguably the greatest poet of the Victorian era, when he basically said, talked about the, the in stress, which is the moment, the shock of awareness of the inscape of a thing, which is the, God's, the grandeur of God's presence in it. We don't no longer just see the oak tree. We see the oak tree as God sees the oak tree. We no longer just see the sunrise. We see the sunrise as God sees the sunrise, at least inklings of that divine understanding. Another thing, the turning point. Tolkien invents a word. So from Hopkins to Tolkien. You catastrophe. The sudden joyous turn in a story. It's the opposite of catastrophe, which is the sudden downward turn in a story. But the real mystery is the eucatastrophe is only possible because of the catastrophe. The sudden joy of the resurrection is only possible because of the catastrophe of the crucifixion. The eucatastrophe of the redemption is only possible because of the catastrophe of the fall. Really, the grand climacteric are, are, are moments of radical conversion. So for the remainder of the talk, there's not much of it left. I'm going to talk about some aspects of that in the work. 
He stops, he pauses at some point in France because he knows this is, as far as, this, is, this is as far as he knows familiarly. He's going to leave the Shire. He's now entering strange country on foot. And I think the way he says it is worth reading briefly. So far, I had been at home. And I was now pouring upon the last familiar thing before I ventured into the high woods and began my experience. He's moving into the unknown. Gandalf says to Bilbo Baggins, he needs to go on the adventure because it will be good for him if he survives because Bilbo Baggins has become a slave to his own possessions. He's possessed by his own possessions. He's uh, trapped, imprisoned within his comfort zone. He needs to take the quest. He needs to go on the journey. He needs to experience the suffering. He needs to open himself up to those moments of gland climacteric. We have certain moments in the book which I think are aspects of what he calls the gland climatric. One is he doesn't like the Germans. And he's, you know, he, his family had to leave the family home when he was a baby because of the German invasion. When they got back home, by the way, Belloc won't remember any of this because he was still a baby. When they returned, the family portraits had been used for target practice. The house had been trashed. Um, so, uh, you know, he has reason. But nonetheless, there's a prejudice here. Basically, you know, that civilised things are French. And he knows he's, he's crossing the border into Switzerland. And first of all, it's French-speaking Switzerland. But he knows sooner or later he's going to enter German-speaking Switzerland. So he hoards some good French wine. Because he's convinced that when he crosses the threshold into the German-speaking part of Europe, it will be impossible to get a good glass of wine. So, he's carrying this burden. He's tired. It's like a cross. He's carrying this burden with him because this is the good stuff. When I cross the threshold of the barbarian lands, I won't have this good wine. And then he says he's tired. He's trudging along. And then he feels his burden become miraculously light. And then a moment later, he hears a crash of glass. <laughs> His precious wine has fallen to the ground. It's completely shattered. He has none of it. It's been taken away from him. His burden has become light. Except it hasn't. It's actually become very heavy because he's absolutely despondent, dejected. He has to sit down and take stock. He's lost his precious and he says, little did I know that when I crossed the threshold, I would find a wine by which this wine was as nothing. Now, we have to assume that this is literally true, that when he got over the threshold, he did find a wonderful wine. But of course, it's a metaphor. All the things of this life, however good they are, are nothing. However much we hoard them, 
So Matthew's gospel, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then we have this other vision. He has a vision of the Alps. I wish I had time to read it, but I don't. But anyway, this is just an, an invitation for you to pick this book up because his prose is, he's a poet, even when he's writing prose. And he, from, the, from, the, from, the, from the peak of the Jura mountain range, he, he looks south and sees the Alps for the first time, 50 or 60 miles in the distance across the plain. And the, the language he uses, the Alps are a metaphor for heaven itself. In fact, I would, if you want homework, and once a professor, always a professor. If you want homework, read the, the, these pages, and if you actually want to make a note, you're going to get this edition, which is certainly one that you can get, because it's in print. Where is it? Vision of the Alps, down here. Um, pages 180 to 181. Read those two pages, and then read Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Him Before Sunrise in the Vale of Chamonix, which means Coleridge sees Mont Blanc in the Alps, the high, I think it's the highest peak in the Alps, just before sunrise and sees the splendor and he's moved to praise God. And not just he moved to praise God, he calls upon the mountain, the trees, the snow, the sky, every, all of creation to praise God for the magnificence of this prayer which they are. And the Alps, this vision of heaven when he gets there. He's in this high, in the high Alps, and he knows just over the top of this mountain is Italy. And he's determined to take the high road, not deviate. In fact, he, a little bit earlier, he treats with contempt those tourists who are taking the train to Interlaken. Whereas he is taking the high road by himself over the high Alps to Rome. He's the Christian. They are miserable sinners. And what happens, of course, he has to bribe the guide. The guide says, this madness. There's a blizzard up there. And this is late June. Well, middle of June. But it's a blizzard up there. It'd be madness will be committing suicide and he gives him enough money basically all the rest of the money he's got which causes him all sorts of problems when he gets to Italy because he spent it all on this futile exercise they get within 800 feet of the summit 800 feet from the Italian border and the guide says we're going to have to turn back because we are not going to survive he's defeated he says, the Alps had conquered me. So earlier, the Alps were a vision of God. Here, they're a vision of God. You think you're big enough to get to heaven without my help? And I'm reminded here, by the way, there's a wonderful metaphor in Brideshead Revisited. And if you haven't read that novel, you should. For the, the, the two main metaphors for grace in Brideshead Revisited both require suffer, both involve suffering. The twitch upon the thread, which Evening War gets from a Father Brown story by Chesterton. In other words, that, that God pulls, brings us back to, uh, back to him, like fishing for us with the twitch upon the thread. But the much more powerful one, a more beautiful one, is that the, the two characters, Julia and Charles, have made this own little world for themselves 
to hell with everybody else, to hell with the church. We've got each other. And the metaphor is this is an Arctic hut. And it's midwinter. And the snow is building up around the hut. And then when the first rays of spring sunshine comes. Beautiful. The ice, the snow on the top of the slopes melts. There's an avalanche that destroys the Arctic hut, destroys their cozy little world. So they have nothing except God. All right, I said a good carry on, but um, I think I've been speaking long enough. I've left loads out. Um, but I'm going to finish with the poem. So he cheats, he breaks all his vows, including, you know, catching a train and jumping on a, a, a donkey and cart, an ox and cart, when the, the person on, the, on the, the ox and cart is asleep, so he says, oh, I'll just jump on beside him and just takes a... So he breaks all of his vows. And then this is a summary in beautiful verse. I love this poem at the end of the whole book. And I love the fact, it's normally when it's... When it's it's not given a title in the book, but it's um, normally called the end of the road, appropriately enough. But what, what he calls it is a dith- dithyrambic epithalamium or threnody. Now, this is interesting because an epithalamium is a song or a hymn or a poem related to marriage. And a threnody is a song that's related to death, to a funeral. So this poem is about a marriage and a funeral. And of course, when you understand what is the Catholic Church, it's the mystical body of Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ. It is the mystical one flesh that makes sense of physical marriage. So when you arrive at Rome, you are celebrating a marriage. But also, he's learned in the course of this pilgrimage to die. The most important death, to die to oneself so that we can live again, be resurrected in Christ. Love is about laying down our lives for others. That's the lesson he's learned. It's the funeral of his old self and the celebration of his union in that mystical marriage which is the Catholic Church. And on that, I'm just going to finish with reading the poem. In these boots and with this staff, 200 leaguers and a half, 200 leaguers and a half, walk tie, went tie, pace tie, trip tie, march tie, held tie, scalp tie, slip tie, push tie, Panted, swung and dashed I, picked I, forded, swam and splashed I. Strolled I, climbed I, crawled and scrambled, dropped and dipped I, ranged and rambled. Plodded I, hobbled I, trudged and tramped I, and in lonely spinneys camped I, and in haunted pine woods slept I. Lingered, loitered, limped, and crept I, clambered, halted, 
stepped and leapt I, slowly sauntered, roundly strode I, and, O oh, patron saints and angels that protect the four evangels, and you prophets vel mayores, vel enchante vel menores, virginis et camphosores, chief of whose peculiar glories, est in aula regis stare, at quaerare et exorare, et clamare et conclamare, clamantes cum clamoribus, pro nobis peccatoribus. Let me not conceal it, Rodi. For who but critics could complain of riding in a railway train across the valleys and the highland with all the world on either hand, drinking when I had a mind to, singing when I felt inclined to, nor ever turned my face to home till I had slaked my heart at Rome. Thank you. Thank you.